This morning's sermon text can be found in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Okay, let me pray and we'll get to work on Colossians chapter 3. Good to be here with you all again for our third week in a row on uh, the book of Colossians, trying to do four sermons uh, through four chapters of of, uh, this book, and uh, hopefully we can can dive in well enough in four sermons. So so let me pray for us, and um, we'll we'll look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4 together. Our Father in heaven, I just pray, Lord God, that as Jesse prayed, um, that we would really love you, Lord God, that you would teach us to, to, love, to love you, to appreciate you, to enjoy your presence, and that we would seek more than anything um, to know the joy of the Lord, to live, to please you, and to give you glory. Lord, we do ask that there would be more love to thee. May our hearts be enlarged the borders of our hearts enlarge to, to love you, the truly lovely being of the universe, and to think that you, in your steadfast love, have come down to this earth to demonstrate your love to us that we would be saved is quite a profound thing. And even though probably most of us have heard that a million times, Lord, I pray that it would be impressed upon our hearts afresh this morning. So we just ask for your grace this morning. We ask that you would give us um, the power of your spirit to help us to see what this word is saying to us. And I pray you would be with me to speak clearly and boldly. And I just ask, Lord God, that uh, as I rejoice in you, that I would love these people and that we would be built up and edified through this sermon. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. So our text is, is simple enough. Um, if we could go to the first slide, uh, that would be wonderful. We have the, um, oh, and, and I, hopefully I fixed the font this week, so no free eye exam with the sermon. Um, I hope you guys can all see that. We have the reality that Paul starts off with. Um, the reality is you've been raised with Christ. He starts with this, this objective reality. Uh, and then second, is there's a command that flows from that reality. If this is true, then this should be true. Um, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, therefore, on the things that are above, not on the things that are uh, on earth. And uh, there's a logic that comes with that. Why? Why should I do these things? Well, it's basically uh, the the reality. You've been raised with Christ. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ. That's why you should seek the things that are above. And then um, there's a promise at the end. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So uh, um, um, there's a couple of questions that we could ask um, and that this passage actually raises for us. What rationale does Paul give uh, for his commands to seek the things above? What rationale does he give? 
Why does Paul teach us that setting our minds on the things above is the necessary response to being raised with Christ? Why does Paul teach us that, 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 that that's mandatory now? That because you've been raised with Christ, that there's this mandatory obligation that is upon a believer. What does Paul teach us about the relationship between objective reality and then how we should live? There's a connection between reality and how we live, therefore. And uh, maybe another question we could ask is, does Paul begin with a command? Does he begin with a command in this passage? And if not, why not? Why doesn't he begin with a command? What can we glean from that? Um, and on a side note, I want to talk to dads, to fathers in this room who are uh, rearing children. And I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you to, when you read scripture with your children, to learn to ask them questions like this. When you disciple other people, learn to ask them questions like this. I want to, I want to make the, 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 the case that learning to think the way that the Bible thinks is actually the most important and highest educational goal that you should have for your children. Even higher than actually passing on the very content of what Scripture says, even higher than that is to bring them into the mindset of how Scripture works, how it's actually revealed to us. Because to do so is to interact with the Holy Spirit, to see Christ and to know the very mind of God. Now what can be higher and more intellectually liberating than learning to think the way that God thinks. The Bible provides content and facts, but the way that it is actually revealed trains our logic. It brings us into the very heartbeat of what it means to be a thinking and breathing and living being, an image bearer of the living God. So this passage teaches us that there is actually objective truth that is out there and it can be known and that there is a relationship between what is real and then how we should live. Now, take note of this. This is very different than the relativistic worldview and, the, and, and mindset that we live in, that we find ourselves in culturally, right? What does relativism say? It suggests that the only reality is what you make of it, right? Reality begins with me and what I think and what I feel, and if I believe it, then it's real, now, this isn't, by the way, a pathway to human flourishing, to say the least. So, fathers, mothers, as we think about our discipleship role, as we think about engaging the life of the mind in the life of the church, um, I want to call us not to just tell our kids what the Bible says, but to engage them with the very mindset of Scripture and to ask them questions like this. And let them be silent for a little bit. I don't know. We'll press it on them a little bit. Get them to think. Why is it that Paul doesn't start with a command here? Because that's really important, as we'll come to see, hopefully. So let's, let's dive into Colossians 3, 1 to 4. That's a bit of a side note. But uh, Colossians 3, 1 to 4, um, and let's uh, flesh this out a little bit, tends to get applied moralistically and uh, perhaps even legalistically. Um, and this is, I'm just drawing from my own experience here on this. Not just in this church, not primarily in this church, but just my, my Christian experience. Um, if you're watching something you shouldn't watch, well, seek the things above. If you're listening to something that kind of pushes the line, set your mind on the things above. Don't listen to that. 
Set your mind on the things above. See, moralistically, kind of almost legalistically, if you will. Now, it isn't wrong, necessarily speaking, to make this connection. But I also want to submit to you that it isn't really uh, what Paul is trying to accomplish here in this passage. He's, He's got a different aim in mind here. What Paul intends to do in these passages when he says, set your mind on the things above, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What is he trying to get done here? He's trying to get believers to constantly set their mind on their new identity in Christ. He's calling them to carefully consider what Christ has accomplished on their behalf so that they would realize all of the benefits that are theirs in the the salvation that Jesus provides for them. So when he calls them to set their minds on the things above, to seek the things above, what he's essentially telling them to do is training them to think about who you are now in light of Christ so that you will make implications and draw out applications for your life, that you will live in light of the power of the salvation that he has accomplished for you. How many of you guys, um, uh, maybe I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you guys, when you buy a new product, right, like uh, like an electronic product, you're the type of person who rips the package open and you go straight for the product and you start playing with it, you wouldn't even think about uh, opening up the manual and looking at the, the instruction manual. You just play with it, right? Most of us are kind of in that category. Um, and then it, it's not until, you know, um, not until you actually get stumped that you really need the advice of the manual. Um, so uh, until you actually go and look at it, right? Uh, am I alone here in this one? I don't know. I'm having a hard time reading you guys. All right, okay. So we got people out there who, uh, they're not going to read the manual until they get stumped. So uh, oh, that's how you turn it on. Okay. Uh, so they won't look at the manual until they actually absolutely need to. They're going to take the product and they're going to they're play with it. Now, I did ask, by the way, to, for those of you who actually would look at the product, not the manual. I didn't ask if you were a manual reader right off the bat. Because it's so much easier, it seems, doesn't it, to brag about the fact that you don't read the manual first. Um, That's my opinion, perhaps. But uh, nonetheless, most of you are probably the type, you buy an electronic gadget, you go straight for the thing. You don't look at the manual. And in some ways, um, I was actually thinking, this is kind of telling us, read the manual. Because when you actually look at the manual, if you actually read it thoroughly, you might come away saying, I can't believe what this thing can do, actually. I never knew it could do this and that and this and so on and so forth. And the reality is, what Paul is actually telling us, I thought about this because what Paul is actually telling us is, keep your nose in the manual. Keep your nose understanding what the salvation is that Jesus actually provides for you because you know what? You wouldn't believe all of the benefits that are there for you in that salvation that he has provided for you. So that's kind of what he's, what he's getting at. Now one of the profound realities that scripture teaches, and I think we see it here, is that to know God is to know yourself. In order to really come into a better understanding of who you are, you have to come into a better understanding of who your God is. If you are a Christian, Paul says that you are a new creation and your whole identity is transformed by the reality that Christ is in you 
and you are in him. Where Jesus has went in the mind of God, you too have been there. What he has overcome, you've overcome. And where he is going, you are going. In order to discover who you truly are, you must come to discover whose you truly are and who you belong to. So you must get your mind off of the man-made religion. And by the way, that's the context here. We've been talking about this. What the Colossian believers are tempted to, to, to keep their mind on is a man-made religion, how they would be perfected with the living God and how they would come to experience the living God. And he says, no, take your mind off of these earthly things and put your mind on Christ and come to understand what Jesus has done for you. Now, believers are called to set their minds on the things above for at least two reasons. Number one, it is your new identity. This is who you are. You've been, you've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. So therefore, it's just logical that this is where your mind would be. And second of all, second of all because Paul wants, Paul wants the believers to set their minds on the things above, to set their minds on their union with Christ, because he wants their union with Christ to profoundly impact every facet of their lives. He sees that your union with Christ profoundly impacts how you handle money, how you deal with your traumatic past, how you endure suffering, the goals that you set, the sin that you fight, the temptations that you face, the success you enjoy, the failures you experience. Paul wants us all, believers, to approach all these things in light of your union with Christ. Now, it's easier to be practical than theological. It is easier to start with our problems and goals and find solutions that fit than it is to start with Christ and keep your minds there and then work outwardly to give consideration to what it means to be in Christ, to, mean, to be with Christ, to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that sounds like church talk. In some ways, if we're really being honest, when was the last time you really sat down and contemplated the hope of glory? What does that mean? I don't know. It sure sounds good, though. If you pound your fist on the pulpit, the hope of glory, and put it on your preacher voice, it sounds impressive. But what does it mean? Give thought to what this hope of glory actually is and work yourself out from there. That's the call that Paul is telling us. Understand your union with Christ. And let that shape the way you address everything in your life. Because it matters. Because everything in your life is completely impacted by your union with Christ. This is what, what Paul instructs. Set your minds on the things above. He's saying, give careful thought to how you are profoundly connected to Christ and what this should mean for everything else as you encounter it. Union with Christ is similar to the word um, trinity in, the, in Scripture because in that it's similar in the sense that the Bible doesn't actually use the word trinity, right? But the idea is there. And in a similar fashion, the Bible talks about union with Christ in different kind of languages, or uh, languages, language, I should say. And this passage in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, drips with language of union with Christ, like water drips from a watermelon. How many of you guys like eating watermelon in the summer? Oh, yes, good. All right? 
When you put, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, this passage drips with union with Christ's language like water drips off of a watermelon, right? Uh, so let's look at it, if we can go to the next slide. Um, there's at least five different explicit ways that I see this happening here. Let's, no, I'm sorry, let's go back one, I'm sorry. Um, so it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, all right? Seek the things above where Christ is. You have access into that place because you're, with, you're united in Christ, all right? For you have died, you've been buried with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ, right? And Christ is your life. And when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's five times that the union with Christ's language is used. Can you see? We've bit in. And there's union with Christ's language running down our cheek and falling on the floor, dripping everywhere, like when you bite into a watermelon. All right? So when we define, let's define union with Christ. And, um, our, you know, <laughs> the, um, union with Christ refers to, unbelievable, uh, unbelievably, you guys are going to be surprised and shocked by this one, but a believer's unification with the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So that's the first uh, level of definition. And then going to um, Wayne Grudem, he talks about this. Wayne Grudem, a good theological friend, always there when you need good theological answers that are clear and easy to understand. Um, he, he talks about um, union with Christ being every aspect of God's relationship to believers is now in some way connected to our relationship with Christ. So therefore, we relate to God on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Now sometimes, uh, when you come, for instance, when you come into a worship service like this, uh, it's, it's tempting to feel like, oh, you know what, I'm going to have a good morning of worship. I really feel like I belong here. I had a good week. I fought sin, so on and so forth. And that's resting on our own merits to come before God, the living God. Versus, what if you sinned this week? What if you had a really cruddy week? What if you had a really lousy week? And the last thing you feel like you are worthy to do and you have the right to do is sing praises to our almighty God. And the reality is, because you're unified in Christ, that is the basis of your relationship with God, not whether or not you had a good week or a bad week, whether you were up or down. The way that we relate to God now as believers is on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. So whether we had a smashing good week and we fought sin and we resisted temptation, or whether we were in the pits and in the gutter, it doesn't matter really because our relationship with God is ultimately secure in the hand of what Jesus has done. We relate to God on the basis of what Jesus has done. And then he also talks about how believers receive, um, um, the, every part of our relationship to God is connected uh, to Christ. And it also means that being in Christ, believers receive every benefit of salvation because we are in Christ, that Christ is in us, we become like Christ, and we are with Christ. For, so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about these, these five ways that I pointed out in this passage and um, talk a little bit about the meaning of these things. So first of all, um, as Paul addresses our union with Christ in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he talks about being buried with Christ. We're buried with Christ. And I see this where he says, you have died. And if we go back to chapter 2, verse 12, it talks about us being buried with Christ in baptism. So when Paul says to believers that you have died, it's a figure of speech. 
You haven't actually been buried in a casket under the ground. You've been buried with Christ in baptism. Now, baptism actually is commanded in the New Testament for believers. Um, It's only commanded for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. Now, um, baptism is a visible symbol of something that's otherwise inward and invisible. So it's an inward expression, or I'm sorry, it's an outward expression of an inward reality, baptism. Getting dunked in the water, being brought back out, right? Uh, It's a visible and outward expression of an inward reality. Now, when someone is dunked under the water, it's to symbolize that they are united to Christ in his death. So they're united to Christ in his death. And for a believer to be united to Christ in his death means that our sin nature and all of the legal demands that come with that sin nature are now put to death. Now I was once Kevin Fetter, living for the passions of my flesh and living to gratify my sin nature. When Jesus came into my life and something truly miraculous happened, I became a new man, not living anymore to gratify and, and fulfill the, the passions of my flesh and my sin nature, because in order for this new man to kind of take place, the old man had to die away. The Bible calls this regeneration or being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The old man had to pass away. Um, In order for the new man to come, the old man had to die. Scripture says that all mankind is born with a sin nature at their physical birth. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that everybody does all the time is necessarily evil all the time. It simply means that everyone, apart from Christ, ultimately is under the power of sin. So instead of being ruled by the living God... Instead of being ruled by the wisdom of God and the love of God, what it means to have a sin nature is to be essentially ruled by your desires and your wants and your wishes. That the highest law that you adhere to as being a sinner and having a sin nature is is that you would fulfill and gratify what you want to live for ultimately the ruler of you and what makes sense to you. And if God is a part of your life at any stretch, it's on your terms, and, and, and you'll re- put up with him or put up with the idea of God uh, as long as it makes sense to you. But as long as it doesn't make sense to you, you can dismiss the idea of God or his wisdom, either kindly or not so kindly. So when Scripture says that you have died, it's saying, actually, that you have died to the power of sin in your life and the ramifications of the legal demands that come with that sin, the consequences of that sin, according to God. You're no longer under the, the, the rule or the mastery of sin, but you're under the mastery now, the rule of God and his rule in your life. Now, you might say, here's a question you might ask. Uh, union with Christ, we, uh, okay, if we're unified to Jesus now, if we're unified to Jesus, and for us, we're unified to Jesus in his death, And for us, it means that we've died to our sin nature. Does that mean that Jesus had to die to his sin nature as well? And the reality is no. Because Jesus is, uh, he's righteous, he's perfect, he's holy. 
And, uh, and, and, and the, the way that we look at this is that both Jesus and ourselves, Jesus has died as a, as a provider, as one who had paid the consequence of, of our sin nature, and we have died with Christ as the beneficiary of what he has accomplished for us in his death. So that's the way that it works. Um, um, so we are the ones who have a sin nature, and, um, and Jesus was perfectly righteous. He's the one who has died as the provider of the consequence of that sin, and we are the ones who die and enter into that death as a benefactor of that. So think about it like this, as an illustration. Imagine your parents, and you're going to take your young kids out to a restaurant. They go bouncing into the restaurant. They're just a few years old, perhaps, and mom and dad aren't sitting at the edge of their seat wondering if Junior's going to pick up the tab, Right? It's not as if they're going to be like, Mom, Dad, um, you know, complaining and whining and fighting over toys is actually a lucrative business, and business has been really good this week. So you know what? Put your checkbooks away. I'll pick up the tab, right? No, the reality is they're going to order food that they're not going to be able to pay for. They're going to rack up a debt that they will totally be enslaved by. They have no way to uh, pay for it, right? But the reality is, because they're unified to their parents, right? They have union with their parents. It's as if all of the resources of their parents are theirs. It's as if everything that their parents have earned belongs to them as well, and is attributed to them as well. So when that $6.49 chicken platter gets racked up, it's really in the debt of the child that they ate 30% of, by the way. Um, it's in the debt of the child, now, the parents actually cover the debt, and the child actually receives the benefit in the debt. And both parent and child are unified in that debt in very different ways. You see that? And that's how the cross is. That's how our, bury, our being buried with Christ is. We're both unified in a death. But Jesus died as one who paid the debt, and we die as the benefactors of that payment of the debt. So that's how we are actually bringing the sin nature into the equation that needs to be paid for. Jesus doesn't bring a sin nature into the equation. He pays for the, our sin nature, and we're unified. All of his righteousness that paid for that on the cross now belongs to us. Just like mom and dad's bank account, that belongs to Junior as well. This is the glory of being unified to Jesus. I hope we can see that, to be buried with him. Number two, raised with Christ. Not only are we buried with Christ, but we're also raised with Christ. Obviously, if Jesus had died on the cross for our sins and stayed in the grave, it wouldn't have finished the deal, right? And I talk about this with our baptism candidates. It would be as if the pastor dunks them under and forgets to bring them up. You really you want to be united in his death, but you also want to be united with him in his resurrection, Right? It wouldn't do much good if only we were united with him in his death, but we're also united with Christ in his resurrection. Now, what does this mean? If we were not united with him in his resurrection, we'd still be under the power of sin. But Jesus does rise from the dead. He rises to new life. And if we are united in Christ in his death, it means our old sin nature has passed away. If we're united to Christ in his life, it means that we have become a new creation, raised to new life. 
Now, this new creation doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. It just means that we are under new management. Sin is no longer our master. We have a new master. Jesus is our new master, and he has given us a new heart. And one of the characteristics of this new heart is that we don't desire ultimately to sin. We desire ultimately to live for the glory of Christ, to live to please God, not to please our own sin nature. We're no longer slaves of sin, meaning our desire is to do our sin. We are slaves of righteousness. We are slaves of Christ, meaning that ultimately, even though we do sin, we, uh, when we, we confess it and we repent of it when we, uh, when we recognize this, and then we desire to walk away from this sin. And it does actually more for that. It gives us the power to walk away from this sin, right? So just as, because we're united in the resurrection of Christ, the same power that is at work in Jesus to actually rise from the dead. And I don't even know, how do you quantify that power? What measure would you use Um, I don't even know. But the reality is, there is incredible life-giving power for Jesus to rise from the dead. And that same power is now at work in believers who are united to him in his life, raised with Jesus in life. The same resurrection power that is available to Jesus through the resurrection is now available to believers who have faith in Christ and are united to him in a life like his. You've been raised with Christ. You are a new creation. God's resurrection power is available to you to fight against sin. So ultimately, your sin, you cannot say, oh, you know what? It's my past. I'm stuck. I'm enslaved. You can't say, oh, it's my personality. That's just the way I'm wired. Oh, you can't say, that's just my experience. That, that, that's, what I've, that's what's been modeled to me. Ultimately, you are raised with Christ. And you are enslaved by none of that. To fight sin, there is the power and the pathway forward to actually become everything that God wants you to become. And that is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So because we are in Christ, we can no longer say, well, it's just my past. Well, it's just my personality. That, that's just who I am. No, you know who you are? You're raised in Christ, and the resurrection power of God is at work in you. Sin is no longer your master. And even though sanctification and your, your, your perfection will be slow, how many of you guys are tired? You're tired of the slowness of sanctification. How many of you think, I should be beyond this by now? And that's the reality. You're going to feel like that, but you know what the other reality is? Sin is not your master. And where you fight, you have the freedom now to fight. You have the freedom because there's the resurrection power of Christ that is at work in you, that's available to you. So you are free to fight. You are free to put on the gloves and fight against sin and say, bring it on. Because you know what? I've got resources. And I will make progress, and I will be brought to completion. So your future is bright. You should be filled with hope, brothers and sisters. Be filled with hope. 
And we need each other in the fight against sin. Because I know it's tiring, it's wearisome. It might feel discouraging. It may feel like, I'm never going to beat this thing. You have the resources to beat it. You have the resources in Christ's resurrection. You have the resources in the body of Christ. If you take your sin seriously and you keep your mind above and you know your salvation, you know what this thing can do, you have the resources available. Number three, I call this uh, triumphant in Christ or ruling with Christ. It says, um, I'm taking this from uh, where it says, he's seated at the right hand of God. Seek your, set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Psalm 110.1, this is a, a reference to Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a fo- your footstool. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's amazing if you think about it. The psalm is a prophecy of Christ, and it describes that he not only occupies the highest position of authority, namely the right hand of God, but it tells us something more. It tells us that he's not only occupying the highest position of authority, it's telling us what he's doing with that authority. Namely, he's bringing his enemies under his submission. He's ruling over and he's conquering every one of his enemies, right? So he exercises authority over his enemies. Now, the greatest enemy of God, who is that? Who actively opposes the work of God, who actively opposes the image of God, the glory of God throughout the earth, Satan and his demons. Since man is made in the image of God, and he bears the image of God, since man was designed to actually be the representation of God on the earth, to reflect his glory, um, you are now in the crosshairs of Satan's design to attack God. We see that in Genesis 3. How did God, or how did Satan come after, how did, God, how did Satan come after God? Well, he went after his image bearers. And he distorted the image of God on the earth. And that was his tactic to destroy the glorious image of God throughout the earth. So because Satan is the number one enemy of God, and because you bear the image of God, Satan is hot on your tail. And because we've been studying the book of Colossians, um, I don't want us to look for Satan and his work in kind of these supernatural, kind of flamboyant type ways. Um, I think the book of Colossians teaches us that where do we find Satan most clearly doing his work? False teaching. Presenting different gospels. One thing the church must understand is this is where Satan most will likely will manifest his, his tactics. Is to destroy the image of God and to attack the image of God by presenting his people with different gospels. Especially those that seem religious. That seem kind of on the right plane. Those that would make people think that they're actually pursuing God and experiencing God, but really they're being driven further and further and further away from the living God. The Bible talks about how Jesus is ruling over, how he, um, how he triumphed over the rulers of this present age, the principalities, the authorities, so what he's teaching is that ultimately, you know who's, who's really the mastermind behind false teaching? When you really peel back the layers of the onion, what's that really driven by? 
the devil. There's satanic influence and satanic power. Ultimately, that is the mastermind behind the false teachings of our day. Yes, they're propped up by men. Yes, you can say that they're further than the flesh. But behind that, the ruler of this world has his claws in it, and he's influencing, using his power to influence teachings that seem really religious and good, but it's so far, and it's deceiving people into thinking that they're good when they need Christ and they need forgiveness. And they're not finding it because they're deceived. And what Jesus said, or I'm sorry, what, what Colossians 3 tells us is that because of our unity with Christ, we also find triumph over Satan and all of his schemes and all of his mechanisms. And one of the ways that God functionally, practically gets this done is through the life of the church, through his spirit operative in his people. By raising up teachers and by indwelling his people, the gospel can be kept pure and the gospel can be kept clear so that no message would be distorted and twisted and, and turned. So we can find triumph, the same triumph, I would, I would suggest, that, that's, that, that Jesus has triumphed over the devil and his works through the life of the church, through the, the gospel message being clearly proclaimed to liberate so that people would not be duped, so that you, Christian, would not be duped by the deception of Satan's false teaching. Christ is actively, through the proclamation of the gospel, bringing the reality, the final reality of the devil's judgment through the, the pure teaching of the gospel in the, in the church. Number four, your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. This language plays on the relevant heartstrings of the Colossian church. Who were, they were enticed by mysterious insights. They wanted to get these mysterious insights that would grant them access into God. Now, Paul also plays on the string of the Old Testament here as well, which very clearly suggests that God's revelation is a mystery until it is unlocked in Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that there's this mystery that God is talking about, this revelation. And, and what, when the Bible talks about a mystery, especially throughout the Old Testament, when it refers to it in, in, in Scripture in the New Testament, it's talking about a mystery that is otherwise unlocked until it comes to fruition with the revelation of Christ. So when Christ Jesus, when Jesus was on the scene, when he was born, all of a sudden, all the stuff that was prophesied of him, all of this stuff that didn't make sense until he came into the earth, boom, now it makes sense. Oh, that's what it was talking about. This mystery is revealed. So in a sense, when he says, your life is hidden with Christ, I'm going to suggest to you what he's actually saying is your life is now revealed in Christ. You're like, no, I'm pretty sure he says your life is hidden in Christ. And I'm going to say it's like a treasure chest. You know what? The map is locked in the treasure chest. You don't have access to the map. You don't know exactly how to get to where you need to go. But if I said, hey, the, the, the map is locked in the treasure chest and here's the key to the treasure chest because it's hidden in the treasure chest. Am I not saying, actually, it's now being revealed in the treasure chest because I have the key to it and I'm giving it to you. And the reality is, Jesus is that treasure chest. And when we think about your life, 
when we think about um, the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life, the goal of your life, the essence of it all is hidden in the treasure chest of Christ. And because you have union with Christ, you now have the key into that. And now it can all, boom, make sense. It can all come into fruition as it relates to the living God. Your life is now unlocked as it relates to the living God. So, when, when, so I'm going to suggest that when Paul says your life is hidden with Christ, it's actually saying your life is now being revealed through Christ. That's what he's really saying. You want to make sense of your life in the, in the, in the most ultimate of terms? You have to look for it in Jesus. Here's the mystery of life. That Christ is going to live his life in you and through you. And the goal and purpose of your life is ultimately to bring him glory and to know his presence and to live for his kingdom and to, and to bring that to pass. To become complete in Christ. To become mature. To become like him. To become formed to the image of Christ. This, is, this makes sense of everything. Do you know why everything happens to you? Do you know why you suffer? Do you know why you're disciplined? It's to conform you to the image of Christ. That is what God is concerned about. Your life is hidden with Christ. And our union now to Christ makes sense of our life in a profound way. And number five, um, we're glorified with Christ. You will appear with him in glory. This idea of the hope of glory. And this idea, too, of, yes, the believer's glorification. Now, you might say, oh, this, this is a Reformed church. Don't you know the five solas? To cry, only to God alone be the glory. Yes, that's true. We're not trying to rob glory from God. But there, there is a sense in which believers now share in the glory of Christ. He is our triumphant uh, uh, Savior, and he will be glorified on that last day. And all glory alone will go to him. But the scripture also does tell us about the fact that the believers in Christ will be glorified. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So yes, it's prideful for us to seek our own glory, but that's not what we're being called to do. He's laying this out as a hope for the believers that we will appear with Jesus in glory because you're unified to him. All mankind has deep aspirations to live forever. Do we not? Who here doesn't have that deep aspiration? We desire to live forever, to ascend upwards, not to the grave. Isn't there something deep in our being that says, this is not right? We desire to ascend upwards, not to end up in the grave. That our human potential could be maximized. That our work would really matter eternally. That our efforts wouldn't be in vain. And that we would not be put to shame. Isn't that one of the great fears, perhaps, especially of believers? Is my faith in vain? Will I really triumph? 
Will all the wrong really be made right? Will God and his justice really account for everything and make everything that was wrong right? Our union with Christ gives believers tremendous hope of a glorious future. That all of our desires to live with God, that all of our desires to be in his presence, that all of our desires to to rule on his behalf, that all of our desires to be free from this body of death. How many of you guys like the fact, oh, I like having a body that's going... And there's a hope that you will have a resurrected body, that we, have, that we desire to live in a body that doesn't actually decay and succumb to the effects of sin. That all of our desires to live on a new earth and to explore God's creation and to rule over it and to cultivate it and to bring it to full fruition, doesn't that sound gloriously, awesomely what you were created to do? This is part of the believer's glorification, brothers and sisters, that this actually will happen. You will appear with him in glory. And these desires will be richly satisfied that our hard work and our faithful labors now will be recognized and that your faith actually will not prove to be in vain. But he will right every wrong and he will vindicate your cause. All of these things are components of what it means for us to appear with Christ in glory, to have Christ in us, the hope of glory, So brothers and sisters, set your mind on the things above. Come to realize who Jesus is. Come to realize not only who you are, but whose you are. Understand the salvation that is yours in Christ. Understand the salvation and what it can do. What it has the power to do. And learn, learn to take that and apply it to all aspects of your life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you glory. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to set our minds on the things above, where Christ is. Lord God, help us to love our Savior, help us to enjoy his presence. And I pray for the grace, Lord God, to keep our minds in that place of understanding our salvation so that we can grow confident, that we can pursue every avenue of our life with the reality that we are united to the risen Savior. There's so much glory there, and I pray that you would give us insight into it. So we pray for your grace, and we pray for your steadfast love to be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.